Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah Hickenbotham. Throughout these podcast episodes, we will speak to a range of individuals about their experience of eating disorders, with the aim of increasing awareness and understanding, whilst reducing stigma and isolation. Please note that the topics discussed in this podcast may be triggering for some individuals, so tread lightly, check in with yourself and reflect on these conversations. This week, I'm joined by Laura Bourne for Eating Disorder Awareness Week, which is focusing on ARFID. Laura is a PhD researcher who is focusing her research on ARFID, which is an eating disorder that hasn't gained much traction in the terms of research, and there's a lot of misunderstanding. We cover a lot of different topics today to debunk all the stigmas associated with ARFID and to provide support to those that are struggling. Hello. Hello. How are you? Can you hear me? It's, re- it's really weird to have earphones in. I'm good. How are you? <laughs> yeah, I'm good, thank you. Um, oh, good. It's so nice to see you again. It feels like it's been such a long time. Oh, it's lovely. It has been a long time. It's Ooh. lovely to see you too. That was like such a long time ago, but a couple of years maybe. Oh, sorry. I think you froze there. Did I? Is that working okay? I yeah, you're better I did to now. get into the... Um... Hang on, I'm going to see if I can turn off... So I guess for the listeners, um, do you want to just kind of introduce yourself and let us know kind of the work that you do within the field of ARFID? Yeah, sure. So I'm Laura, Laura Bourne, and I am a PhD student in my final year, sort of very quickly hurtling towards the end of it now. Um, <laughs> and I'm really interested in ARFID generally um, and restrictive eating disorders or eating patterns um, but I'm also very interested in things that sort of come alongside ARFID, so picky eating and the overlap there, um, and also autism and um, restrictive eating patterns within autism as well. Um, but because, you know, as we mentioned before, ARFID is a relative, still a relatively new diagnosis, there's still so much to learn. So I'm generally very interested. I can't say that there's a specific area that I'm interested in. Mm. Uh, because we don't really know enough about anything to be specialising in anything. Um, but no, generally very interested in ARFID, and, and that's really where my research is based. Mm, yeah, and I mean, that's amazing, because as, as you just said there, like, we know so little about it. And I think there's so many misconceptions, so the more research that's been done, the better. Um, mm. But I'm kind of interested how you how you got into it you know because because there is so little known about it where did you first hear about it or think ah that's something that I want to do a PhD in yeah that's a really good question actually because I was always quite interested in anorexia um and specifically the sort of cognitive thinking styles that come with anorexia um either those that sort of cause it or maintain it or those that um come as a result of having anorexia and that was my undergrad project And then when I decided I'd be quite interested in doing a PhD, I was also quite interested in the overlap with um, autistic cognitive uh, styles as well. And I approached my supervisor, Will Mandy, and I explained that I was quite interested in this overlap between anorexia and autism. And he sort of introduced me to ARFID, funnily enough, and said he knew of um, somebody, Dr. Rachel Bryant-Moore, who was at Great Ormond Street at the time, um, who knows pretty much everything there is to know about ARFID and I just sort of fell into it in that sense so um she explained that it's it was such in such an early stage of research needed work needed attention and um yeah I got really interested in it from there and and it sort of sparked something you know um I wasn't 
completely set on researching anorexia and autism, but certainly interested in understanding more about eating disorders and the overlap with autism. And that's sort of how I fell into ARFID. Mm. That's amazing. And um, Rachel, to me, is a massive celebrity because I did my eating disorder masters and she did a lecture for me. And I remember sitting there thinking, (laughs) oh, my gosh, this woman is amazing. Um, So it's very cool that she is now your supervisor. Um, She is amazing. (laughs) I guess just for the listeners, um, in case people don't know, do you want to kind of explain what ARFID is? And I guess with that, I don't know whether this is the best way to do it, but maybe to think about how it's different to anorexia as well, because I think sometimes when people don't know a lot about it, there is quite a lot of confusion. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So ARFID is an eating disorder um, and it was introduced as a diagnosis in 2013. Um, And it was kind of introduced to capture people who restrict the amount or type of food that they eat um, or avoid certain foods, but not, importantly, not based on any cognitions relating to weight or shape or body image. So that really is the main difference between anorexia um, Mm. because symptomatically they're relatively similar. You know, um, so some of the manifestations, the outcomes or consequences of ARFID are low weight or significant weight loss. Um, which obviously we see in anorexia. So um, there tends to be quite a lot of overlap there in terms of people misdiagnosing or misclassifying or misunderstanding it. Um, But ARFID isn't driven by that. So, um, yeah, just to go back to ARFID, low weight is one of the clinical manifestations, significant nutritional deficiencies, um, a dependence on tube feeding or supplementation, again, something you might see with anorexia. Um, And then finally, that it has a significant impact on somebody's what we call their psychosocial functioning. So essentially, it has a significant impact on the way that they live their life. Um, But yeah, the main difference really is just this, uh, what is driving ARFID? So, um, and I I can't say that I'm an anorexia expert, um, and I don't know the diagnostic criteria particularly well, but I do know that that is the the primary driver of anorexia, you know, something related to that. Um, But that's not the case in ARFID. So, um, in terms of what drives ARFID, I suppose, is quite an important question. Um, So, first, I probably should mention that we talk about sort of subtypes in ARFID, but there aren't actually formally recognised subtypes at the moment. The diagnostic criteria offers three examples of features that are commonly described in the literature or in clinical practice. Um, And so instead, we we don't think of them as subtypes. We think of them just as examples of things that we often see. Um, And these are um, a sensory-based aversion, so avoiding foods based on the sensory characteristics of them, a fear or phobia-based aversion, um, and then this kind of lack of interest in eating or lack of appetite. So I sort of see it, what we call a heterogeneous condition, I sort of see it as a, a, I don't really like the term catch-all, but it essentially captures those people who symptomatically could look similar to somebody who has anorexia, um, but the drivers behind it are very different Mm. and they're the main differences really I think the kind of most obvious Mm -hmm. yeah and do you think there would ever be a case I mean I guess it's difficult isn't it because all individuals are going to be different but but if 
if somebody was presenting with Arthur and like their main sort of um driving factors for their eating disorder was that like fear of the consequences of food or like a sensitivity towards different textures and stuff but they also like had um the drive for losing weight as well if that happened because I'm sure some people do have that because you know with the society that we live in would they still be given an offer diagnosis or would they then would you have to look at that a bit differently so as I see as I understand anorexia essentially trumps ARFID. So if somebody um, expresses a desire to lose weight or a desire to um, stay at a very low weight, for example, and that's the primary reason driving their food restriction, they'd receive an anorexia diagnosis only. Um, If they say say they had severe sensory sensitivities which meant that they only liked crunchy food for example and as a result they only ate three foods and it resulted in significant nutritional deficiencies but in uh, an assessment they they sort of expressed that yeah I do read magazines or you know I look at Instagram and I quite like the idea of losing weight or something that perhaps that would be uh, I suppose that would take a level of nuance in terms of clinical yeah. judgment um, if they believe that the primary driver is weight loss or low weight or sticking at a low weight um, or if they think that that is, as you say, just a kind of a byproduct of the society mm. that we live in, that these people, you know, that the, the driver is ARFID related, therefore they get a diagnosis of ARFID, but we acknowledge that, that those cognitions exist mm. in lots of people in some way or another. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's just really interesting because I remember doing a podcast before um, with Talia who had ARFID and and she said that that was something that she found kind of frustrating about the diagnostic criteria was like no um, like weight concerns or anything. She was like, well, I'm still concerned about my weight. It's just not like the primary factor, um, mm-hmm. which I think is why I like to highlight, you know, that with the society we live in, those thoughts unfortunately can be quite common, but like the main driving factor is around that like fear um, of the consequences or those sensory characteristics and, and things like that. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's a really important point. Um, I'm not sure exactly what the diagnostic criteria set, says, but I quite like to make the point that the primary driver should be related mm-hmm. to sensory sensitivities, lack of interest sure. or whatever. Um, but that, of course, weight and shape cognitions exist and, and they can be there as well. And I think it's unfair to assume that somebody, I mean, you do often see people with ARFID that say, absolutely not. I'm not interested mm-hmm. in, in fact, uh, I'd like to put on weight. I'm not interested in that. Yeah. You, you do see that, obviously. Um, but it goes without saying that people, you know, you know, go for an assessment and may still have those thoughts and feelings, mm-hmm. but it's just not primarily driving, um, say, the weight loss that they're exhibiting or, you know, the low weight that they have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And you mentioned um, when you were talking about the kind of signs and symptoms of ARFID, um, the kind of psychosocial um, consequences of ARFID. And I wondered maybe if we could just go into a little more detail about the consequences that ARFID can bring to someone. Yeah, I mean, as we mentioned before, there are four um I guess, outcomes or manifestations, however you want to say it, within the diagnostic criteria. So somebody has to have at least one of them in order to be considered, say, for a diagnosis. Um, And consequence-wise, low weight is is quite an obvious one in children that can manifest as um, kind of an inability to meet 
appropriate developmental expectations. So if, say, their height's not catching up in the right place. Um, and then also things like nutritional deficiencies um, and the literature sort of evidences lots of different nutritional deficiencies, because I'm quite severe, that come as a result of not eating um, either enough or a varied enough diet. Um, and then you've got the tube feeding and the supplementation, which are, you know, quite obvious ones. Um, but this psychosocial functioning consequence is the one that is a bit of a sticking point for some people. I mm -hmm. think because it's not that obvious to tell, mm -hmm. you know, how much of an impact this is really having on somebody's life. Um, and again, as we said before, it takes a level of nuance to determine whether somebody is functioning as they kind of should, but, you know, ticking along, or if it really is imp impacting them in a significant way. Um, and I think I'm not a clinician and I don't know how clinicians decide whether somebody should receive a diagnosis of ARFID based on that particular mm. criterion. Um, but I guess it's things like not being able to, at school, for example, not being able to sit with your peers and eat your lunch because you can't handle the smells in the room um, or you can't see the sights of other people's food that you don't particularly like um, or at work if it's affecting how you work or where you work then it could mean that uh, the individual should be receiving a diagnosis after and therefore have some support to um, to tackle that. Um, but that's definitely the most difficult one. I think the other three in terms of um, clinical appearance, in, in mm. terms of being able to see something or, or measure something, they're quite obvious. That last one is the one that sort of trips people up quite a lot and does lead to quite a bit of discourse and quite a lot of discussion. Um, but yeah, they're, they're the four consequences really of ARFID. Um, yeah. And you can have all of them, you can have just one, but there has to be at least one present. Mm. Yeah, I mean, just thinking about like the psychosocial consequences of it, I can imagine, you know, if, if somebody has such a limited diet or, you know, such a limited variety of foods that they feel comfortable with, just on like a social level the impact that that would have in terms of you know not being able to go to certain restaurants not being able to eat certain foods um, not being able to have people cook for you that sort of thing like that's a massive part of your life really isn't it that you know eating is something that we have to do several times of the day and if that's something that one is bringing you lots of anxiety and two you know, it's something that you don't feel comfortable and being flexible with, then that's, you know, that's going to have a massive impact. And with that, I guess, you know, that anxiety link there um, will psychologically make everything so much harder as well for people that are struggling with ARFID. Definitely. Yeah, it can have a huge impact on so many different areas. And it might be that somebody is sort of getting by so that, you know, okay, they don't like other people cooking for them, but they will eat their food at home and then go around to their friend's house and they feel that they're coping okay with that. And although, um, you know, they're missing out somewhat because they can't sit and socialise whilst eating, um, they still are being able to socialise. But if it's getting to the point where they're not socialising um, and they feel on a personal level that that has an impact on them because, of course, there are people that are quite happy not to socialise, mm. but if they want to be socialising and the the eating specifically is what's stopping them from doing that. Um, I think that's probably where the line is drawn. Um, and quite often treatment can be just about achieving a kind of good enough result. So um, if all of your friends go to Nando's, for example, and you can just 
you can um, just about manage to eat a bowl of chips with your mates. That's good enough, you know, and that could that could equal recovery. That could equal ticking off that box of psychosocial functioning because I'm able to go out with my friends to a restaurant and get some chips, um, which beforehand I wasn't able to do and therefore I was missing out. Mm. Um, but it is a tricky one to navigate. Yeah. And it's, I think that's really interesting what you were saying there about like, you know, you might have been able to for a while just cope. And I think that's that's that happens a lot with people, you know, not just with Arthur, but with eating disorders in general. It's that you like build up coping mechanisms that allow you to kind of, I guess, just about engage in things and just about um, do it so that actually when you take a step back, you realize, oh, like this is actually having a big impact on my life. But because I'm almost semi recovered, like that quasi recovery, like it's okay, because I can still go out with my friends, I just can't eat with them. Like you don't feel like you're completely missing out. Um, But often I think they're, they're like the hardest people to catch. And almost it's the hardest to recover from as well, because you're like, well, I'm still doing it. Like, why do I need to go to that next level? Mm. Yeah, definitely. And we see like, I've spoken to parents and carers and and they say um, they talk about their coping mechanisms and maybe it's that their child can go to a birthday party but they don't eat or they get they get there after the food's been served for example mm. or leave before it's served or they take a packed lunch with them um, they don't go on holidays because it's just too much to handle having to take a suitcase full of um, I don't know particular hot cross buns that their child eats and that's it um, so in the end you know it might be that they can cope for a certain amount of time possibly the behaviours get worse or the coping becomes just too much to bear and that's when it tips over into that sort of clinical um, criteria. So I think it's really difficult to say. Um, and I think it probably also requires the individual saying how much of an impact. And as you sort of quite rightly mentioned, sometimes you don't even realise that yourself, that mm. it's it's having a real impact on your life until you step back and look at it. Um, and the same for parents example of children particularly of Arfid it's that sort of stepping back and saying actually do you know what this is really difficult it makes my life really quite difficult yeah and um, and that's I think when it tips over yeah and and that like kind of brings me on to asking you a question that I, I really wanted to ask as I think there's so much uh, misunderstanding that things like this it's just picky eating mm. um and I think a lot of the time, particularly, I think almost picky eating is accepted in children. Um, but when it's adults, it's like, oh, just get over yourself. Um, mm. You know, like it's just food. You you shouldn't have this sort of response to it. Um, but, you know, from what I know, our food goes so much further than, than just picky eating. And I guess from your clinical research perspective, would you mind just kind of explaining why it is more than just picky eating? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, a real common misconception. So picky eating is technically sort of considered a normal phase of childhood development. Lots of children only eat pasta for ages or refuse their vegetables, you know, or only will only eat from a blue plate, for example. And that's relatively normal. Um, so lots of experience, uh, lots of children experience fussiness. Um, but generally what happens is children move out of this phase for some reason or another whether that's you know something that happens externally sort of social motivation to sit and eat with their friends or um some kind of internal motivation they tend to come out of that children with arfid don't um and the difference is that say for example when you get this 
horrible advice about you know let them starve or don't uh ju- just don't give them their dinner and they'll eventually eat actually children with arthritis won't eventually eat and that's mm. when you run into all sorts of health or nutritional difficulties um so the real difference really is that picky eating is generally quite a transient phase of childhood development and generally doesn't have too much of an impact um doesn't warrant any kind of clinical attention obviously it's important to keep an eye on it um but the sort of general advice not to put too much pressure on kids and Mm. and try to give them their accepted foods and try to get as much nutrition into them as you can in, in whatever form you know um whereas after children and the sort of children that do need clinical input and it does warrant clinical attention um, and I suppose identifying the difference between that is where the research is headed at the moment just trying to decide where is that line between the children who are probably going to grow out of it and don't really need um, any kind of attention focused on it and where are the children who do need that attention focused on it because it could lead to some significant health problems. And do you have any thoughts on how you do distinguish that or is it kind of just a waiting game to see if they because I, I don't like the idea of like oh we'll just wait to see if they grow out of it because mm, then obviously mm. you're putting somebody in a vulnerable position of one it could get worse and two it kind of makes it sound like off oh, it is something that then you could grow out of yeah definitely I, I and I, I don't think that's sort of the right maybe I gave the wrong impression there that oh no sorry not, that, not you no no that wasn't yeah, no, you I, understand. I just want to, yeah yeah make it clear <laughs> don't just wait for someone to grow out of it <laughs> yeah. yeah or start having some really horrible difficulties no definitely I, I don't know how you would determine I suppose it's looking out for um Arthur's specific symptoms so things like these drivers we talked about earlier um does their pickiness seem to be stemming from some kind of sensory Mm. difficulty um or some kind of cognitive rigidity so particularly autistic children um but not always but you know you might see that they are particularly fixed on having the same meal every day um and then yeah so looking I suppose at the drivers and seeing if that is feeding into the pickiness so it's not just a case I don't really want that tonight or mm. I would like pasta again. Um, and then I suppose the big thing is looking at the consequences. So, um, you know, if your child is very low in weight or is losing weight quite rapidly, if you're noticing um, the effects of some kind of nutritional deficiency or as we spoke about before, the difficult one of, you know, is it having a significant impact on their life? And I think I want to use the word is this having a kind of persistent impact but that's quite difficult because as you say it sort of requires you to sit back and and wait and see which is doesn't feel right doesn't feel very nice um but just keeping an eye out for these signs and symptoms and maybe engaging with healthcare services if you think there's a significant uh difficulty there or a consequence um but generally with pickiness in childhood particularly sort of early childhood um you know preschool and between I don't know I don't know the exact ages I don't think they're really um delineated but you know maybe three to about six if they're experiencing fussiness uh but they won't sit and eat their dinner but they'll quite happily have cake and ice cream afterwards 
Um, so they're getting calories, which is lovely, you know, and they're getting nutrition. Mm-hmm. So that's great. You know, if, if that tends to be the pattern, then keep an eye on it, but step back a little bit. But um, again, I'm not a clinician and, you know, I wouldn't like to say that that's definitely the right way of doing it. But just looking at it from a sort of logical perspective, I guess it's a case of um, judging how much of an impact it's having on their life. And if it's not really having an impact on their life, they're just being fussy for the sake of being fussy or because, you know, we don't know the biological underpinnings of this fussiness phase, um, then you can generally take a step back. But ARFID clinically looks very different um, and the consequences are really where it sits. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good sort of overview and, and maybe thinking of like the severity of their um food choices and things like that you know like you said if it if it's just you know oh mum I don't want that today or like you know a bit of a sort of phase of not wanting a certain thing compared Mm. to like an actual fear of what's going to happen um if they can't if they if they have to eat something I did just want to pick up on as well because I think I mean I was having a little read around before we did this episode together um and we kind of mentioned it quite a lot um already but it definitely feels like there's more research being done in children than and children and adolescents than there is in adults um but I think you know I mean I've spoken to people that are adults that have ARFID as well um mm. does it look any different in adults or is it the same in adults just maybe not as recognized I don't know I'm not sure why the researchers may be focused on children more than adults yeah it's a strange one and I think possibly because um in terms of the underpinnings or these like etiological underpinnings of um ARFID they would tend to stem from a very early age so sensory sensitivities I suppose um the presentation would first appear quite early on you'd you'd start to see that your child perhaps didn't like certain wearing certain clothes didn't like certain foods on their plate or whatever and um, so maybe that's where this focus on childhood comes comes from um and also the emphasis on sort of nipping it in the bud I guess you know um early intervention early identification so that's really where it comes from but of course ARFID although it's only been around as a diagnosis for about 10 years it's always been there you know these there, there are plenty of um, older children and adults who have lived with these symptoms for forever you know for as long as they can remember I imagine um in terms of the literature I don't know I'm, I'm not particularly um up to date on the adult ARFID literature I don't know if the presentation is very different I doubt there is too much difference um because the diagnosis is the diagnosis so essentially it would look roughly the same but there probably are some differences in um you know the characteristics of the way that Arthur presents plus as well we have to remember that adults and older children and young people have had to live with this for Mm. longer and have probably developed coping mechanisms and strategies and so we sort of have to factor in the fact that they've not had the validation of a diagnosis or even of a, of a diagnostic term, even if they hadn't been diagnosed or haven't yet been diagnosed, but they feel they can attribute their symptoms to ARFID, um, that must be really validating. So, yeah, there are distinct differences, but I guess the focus on children 
possibly comes from the fact that it stems from an, some some presentations stem from an early age. Obviously, some don't. Um, but my research tends to focus on children largely because Rachel um, works with children and young people. So my sort of access to participants tends to be children and young people. Um, but there is a huge focus in the literature on children and young people, strangely. Um, and that might also stem from the fact that prior to it being ARFID in our previous diagnostic manual, it was focused on children only, the diagnosis. It wasn't called ARFID, mm. um, but the symptoms that captured it were focused on children, I think under six maybe, wow. just off the top of my head. Um, and then above that, they they didn't meet the criteria for it, whereas now we recognise ARFID as a lifespan disorder. Mm. Um, so it could just be that we're sort of still stuck in the thinking that this is a childhood um condition Hmm. when obviously it isn't but um yeah it's a tricky one and I'm not sure really of the um the reasons behind that but um my research so far has tended to focus on children and young people but I'm very interested in it you know Hmm. its continuation through life yeah it's really interesting isn't it because it's almost that um it's very similar with if you think about like anorexia you know the research initially started as a a female illness and mm. we've kind of latched onto that and it's now taking years of work to kind of educate people that this is not just a female illness and that it can affect everybody so you know if it did start as a illness that was you know focusing predominantly on children it then takes so long to to unravel that um mm. and I think another thing that I wanted to pick up on and talk to you about um was so you kind of mentioned like you know if an adult has had it for a long time they probably develop coping mechanisms and things like that and it it made me sort of think of like the whole masking that people do with like um neurodiversity things like autism and ADHD and Mm. I wanted to talk a bit more about the link between ARFID and autism which you kind of mentioned at the start um because there's a lot of research that you know suggests the link between ARFID and autism but I'm worried that once again we're going to go down this path of um you know like ARFID is a childhood disorder then oh you know you could you only have ARFID if you're autistic um and I just wondered if you'd had any done any research on that or knew of any research to suggest whether that was true or whether you can have ARFID without autism yeah definitely that's a really important point and I think I, I try to make a, a big deal really out of saying that although ARFID appears to be quite common in autism, you don't have to be autistic to have ARFID. Mm. Um, and I think that's a really important point. And I suppose it stems, this sort of misconception stems from the fact that there seem to be these sort of transdiagnostic features, the so things that occur across both conditions. So we see these sensory sensitivities. We also see interceptive differences which are things to do your interception is your kind of ability to recognize and respond to internal body states so with food or eating that could relate to say hunger and satiety we see differences in those in people with ARFID and autistic people too um but then also other factors which we touched on earlier these sort of cognitive differences so we often see this preference for sameness or cognitive rigidity, intense interests and behaviours. So all of those things that we see in relation to autism that could foster difficulties with eating. So I suppose it makes sense that people assume there's this term, you know, autistic eating, which um, you know, it, it, it kind of assumes, I suppose, that 
if you're autistic and you have difficulties with eating, then that's kind of the way that it is and you've got mm-hmm. to get on with it. But, of course, that's not true. Um, and it may be that you have an idiosyncratic diet that you have particular preferences but that you tick along quite nicely. Um, but if the eating disturbance warrants additional clinical attention, so say that you experience certain differences in the way that you eat because you're autistic, um, but then on top of that, you have particular eating preferences that are causing some kind of significant difference in the way that you live your life, for example, your health. That's, I think, when ARFID can be diagnosed. So, um, yeah, there is an overlap. We know that eating problems generally are really common in autism. Um, So, you know, lots of reasons, oral motor delays, rigid rigid food preferences, that sort of thing. Um, But ARFID absolutely isn't... um, you know, exclusive to autistic people. And similarly, you could be autistic and not have ARFID. So there's a definite overlap there. Um, But I I don't really like the idea that people assume that the two go hand in hand because Mm. they absolutely don't. Um, We don't have specific sort of prevalence figures or anything like that. Um, But we do understand that it's probably quite a prevalent and impactful problem for autistic people. We just don't know exactly how prevalent it is mm. yeah yeah I, I, I don't know whether this is a controversial opinion but um I just have a massive hatred for you know when something is like commonly occurs when it's like oh like ARFID commonly occurs in children and with people with autism and then it's mm. like okay so that's that's okay because you know you're trying to highlight people that may be more vulnerable to that condition but equally now like every single person that doesn't fit that criteria of being a child or being autistic you're going to be less likely to think that they have ARFID and therefore exactly. they might be overlooked and I just think that it's just not helpful in in any mm. realms because you could say oh but it makes diagnostics easier but actually it could make diagnostics harder because you could misdiagnose somebody or you know if they don't meet the criteria think well they can't possibly have ARFID because they're not autistic um and I really liked what you said about um, you know, if somebody has autism, you just automatically think that they, if they have eating difficulties, that's just something that they have to cope with. And this is something I spoke about on a podcast a few weeks ago. I can't remember who it was with, but we were saying how rather than saying like, oh, I have autism, therefore, like I have to deal with these eating difficulties. It's about like leveraging your autism in a positive way so you know rather than saying oh I have autism so I have to eat in this ritualistic way it's like how can I use my autism to better my recovery rather than let it impact my recovery in a negative way um and I've been so worried about saying that for so long because I'm like oh my god I don't want people to think that I'm like you know minimizing their experience or disrespecting them or anything but then actually saying it I was like no, that is true. Like, why should you, why should you let something negatively impact you? You know, you would never say, I don't think for example, but like in everything, you know, use that to your advantage and make a positive out of it rather than letting it negatively impact, you know, the way that you have a relationship with food. Definitely. And and it sort of relates to autism generally, really, because there are people um, that sort of assume that autism is a negative thing. And actually, it brings so many wonderful strengths as well. And it's about, as you say, using those strengths to your advantage. And, you know, these kind of wicked areas of expertise and intense focus. And 
they're great you know that that they're, they're great strengths and um you know with eating difficulties as you say using those intense interests and behaviors perhaps trying to use them in a way that you can help to foster recovery so it is just about um looking at it from a different angle I suppose yeah. um, and then just just going back really quickly to a point you made earlier about anorexia being sort of exclusive to girls it's kind of the same in a similar sense to the assumption that um that aut- autism is specific to boys mm-hmm. and now we're realizing that actually it's absolutely not and there are lots of autistic women out there girls and women who possibly have a slightly different presentation but because we'd made this assumption that autism looks a certain way mm. um and tends to come you know most most prominently in boys we'd sort of skipped past all of these women that were struggling and masking and camouflaging in so many different ways um and actually deserved a diagnosis so they could get access to support if they mm. felt that they needed it so yeah it's just about sort of widening the view widening the lens on understanding the condition as opposed to um you know seeing it as just something that's really simple oh you know autism and it, it's really simple that's not the case um although it helps to know that it can occur in mm. uh, in autism it they're absolutely they don't go hand in hand mm. Yeah, absolutely. No, and I think you're so right. I think that's the problem with sort of the brush stroke, uh, sort of, you know, this is common in this kind of population, is that then people get missed. Um, and Definitely. that can be then so detrimental for people. Um, and I, I think also what you were saying about, you know, some characteristics can be really great. I think one thing I have been trying to do is so I'm currently going through the a potential um, ADHD diagnosis and um, my therapist was saying, you know, it's, it's amazing because your brain is an amazing place because you are able to be creative and, and think of all of these things. And I'm like, I get that. It's also shit sometimes. <laughs> yeah. and, and I just really wanted to say that because um, I know that people walk around saying, oh, you know, neurodiversity is a superpower and all of that. <laughs> yeah, and I yeah. completely agree. Like some aspects of it are totally amazing. Like, just like my eating disorder, you know, anorexia yeah. has made me the most driven, motivated, determined person. It's fantastic. It's also like ruined a lot of my life. Um, yeah. But I think it's being able to flip that and think, okay, these these skills, these talents that I have could potentially cause a negative. But now that I'm aware of them and now that I know them, I can use them in a better sense. And, you know, now I've I've found a career that I really enjoy and that allows me to, like, use my brain in a specific way and be motivated and hyper-focused and very organised and all of that. But it just, I had to shift my mindset of being like, rather than letting this destroy me, I'm going to... have a positive which, which takes time and it's hard to do that and, and and that comes from the person as well you know I, I can sit here as a non-autistic person and say it brings about so many wonderful strengths but obviously it has to come from the person that is living mm. with it so I can't really sort of you know I can't make that assumption I just sort of see it from um I see it as as we said neurodiversity I think it's helpful to think of it as that um as opposed to any kind of disorder or any kind of um, negative. But of course, there are challenges that come with these mm. things. And it's, you know, I suppose it's a part of your identity. You don't lose a diagnosis of autism or ADHD. Um, so it's learning to sort of, 
accommodate that and you know learning to live with it and as you say looking for the strengths in it and but that has to come from the person and Mm -hmm. sounds like you're sort of on your way to to recognizing that and integrating it into your life in a positive way yeah absolutely and I think that's the power of a diagnosis isn't it it is it doesn't have to be a negative It, it can allow you to sort of like be oh that's why my brain does that and fully embrace Mm. it Um, definitely and one thing I just wanted to ask you about as well um was uh treatment and Mm. um I know that you've been doing some research on the barriers towards treatment um so I think it'd be it'd be really cool to chat about that and kind of how we can overcome those barriers yeah definitely yeah as you say I've been doing some qualitative research um with parents and carers of um, children and young people with ARFID um, and a really central theme in the interviews that we did was that getting access to treatment is just so difficult um, and it's for various reasons so there was a lack of understanding from healthcare professionals um, such as GPs and health visitors and school nurses and, and that's not necessarily their fault it's just because there's this real lack of training with ARFID because it's relatively new um, relatively unknown um, and then they found that practitioners were brushing them off as we've said as as picky eating um, or wrongly classifying it for example as anorexia because we discussed earlier these I suppose the the clinical overlap somewhat if you don't know what ARFID is or you don't know very much about it it mm. makes sense that you might assume somebody has anorexia um, but the treatment implications are so very different that it's really important that we're not misclassifying the two. Um, and then there's also issues, uh, barriers to accessing care, simply because of the absence of what we call referral pathways, um, because so many NHS services aren't currently commissioned to treat ARFID. So actually, even if you go to a GP who knows what ARFID is, who feels quite confident to refer you on to somebody who could help you, mm. um there's not really anywhere to send them usually. So there are some real sort of difficulties with accessing care. Um, And then, of course, on top of that, you've got a sort of a lack of awareness amongst the general population as well, which doesn't help. Um, And I suppose acts in some way, in a direct way to to accessing um, appropriate care. So um, quite a few of the parents said that they'd felt judged and quite isolated there was quite a bit of parent blaming, some really awful things, um, all really stemming from people just not really understanding, just thinking that they should be harsher with the child or, you know, um, put their foot down. If they won't eat it, they won't eat it. Actually, that's not really the case. Um, So, yeah, lots of different reasons why people are struggling to access care. And it's a really, really big problem, I think, Um, unfortunately, for various reasons. Yeah, I think... um... I think that like stigma and misunderstanding is so prevalent. Um, And I think you only have to, you know, if I just think of experiences where, you know, somebody's been a picky eater or, you know, somebody's assumed that they're a picky eater um, and, you know, comments like, you know, it's poor parenting or, you know, Mm. you just, you're an adult, grow up and just eat it and stuff. And it's Mm. so minimizing and comments like that would then make you think, well, I don't need support for this. I just need to like snap out of it. I just need to get on with it. Um, And I think especially for adults with 
this being such like a a child focused um illness it must be so difficult you know it's almost like like we were saying before a man going to an eating disorder service like the services are not kind of designed ready for them um so then you know that then puts people off but I guess with that in mind sort of what's your thoughts about the future for treatment like I think quite drastic things it sounds like need to happen but where would you like to see the change happening? Yeah I think the key thing is that currently there aren't any nice guidelines for assessing or managing ARFID um, which kind of makes sense because you need some real sort of hardcore evidence-based research to back up guidance um, you know that's going to that's going to be sort of sent around to all sorts of practitioners. Um, So that makes sense. So I think that research needs to focus on trying to establish some guidance to help practitioners manage, especially those who um, are the sort of first point of call. So as we say, GPs, health visitors, those sorts of people. Mm. Um, Even, you know, as simple as um, a slide in, I don't know what sort of training uh, GPs have, you know, just just generally sort of updated training as they go throughout their career. But, you know, a slide in a PowerPoint presentation that says, this is ARFID and mm-hmm. these are the consequences, look out for this, um, you know, that sort of thing. Or um, posters in GP surgeries so that parents who are really struggling with their children I can't figure out what the issue is. They've never heard of ARFID. They don't know what it is. But if there's a poster that says, could your child have ARFID, um, mm. it sort of alerts them to that term so that they can go off and if they need to do their own research. Um, yeah, so, and, and again, you know, with the nice guidelines will come hopefully more funding. I think there is funding in the pipeline. I think that it's something that is being focused on in, in the efforts of the NHS. Um, so, I do think that we're headed in the right direction, but currently it's not in the right place. Um, and that means that lots of people are struggling to get access to that care. Um, so, yeah, that, I mean, in terms of getting access to treatment, that's really where we need to go. In terms of treatments um, that are currently being used, the main thing I think with ARFID is this sort of multidisciplinary input from lots of different specialists in areas of care, um, you know, medical monitoring and nutritional input and similar to other eating disorders, really. Mm. So they're sort of doing well, as far as I understand, again, I'm not a clinician, I don't work clinically, but as far as I understand, helping um, individuals with ARFID to achieve this sort of good enough situation, this good enough outcomes so they can go off and live their life and lose the diagnosis of ARFID, um, that's all headed in the right direction, but it's really getting the bums on seats as they say you know getting people in front of the right people and 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 hopefully not in front of the wrong people um by that I mean you know going through an anorexia protocol an anorexia treatment Mm. which could potentially send them off in the complete wrong direction Mm. and they're the sort of main focus points I think for future research Uh, sorry future treatments yeah I just want to ask about so you said like to get rid of the ARFID diagnosis, like you, the, the, I guess, aim of the treatment is that like good enough. So mm. does that mean that somebody's still going to struggle with food? It's just like they'll kind of manage it in life? Yeah. So I think, I think the main thing is that say they experience nutritional deficiencies 
that you help them to restore those so that they're not struggling health wise um and weight weight restoration you know so all of these sort of outcomes you target those um and essentially just try to get them to a point where they can live a relatively normal life and for the majority there'll be people particularly for these sort of sudden onset cases so the acute onset like a choking incident or a vomiting incident or fear of contamination say related Mm. to covid for example um you know you see those and it may be that with some sustained and specialist input they can completely lose that fear or that phobia Mm. and go off and live a a pretty normal life and but for the people who have inherent sensory difficulties or as we said earlier the interception Mm. difficulties they're probably never going to lose those. They probably always will struggle to sort of tell when they're feeling hungry, for example. Um, But if treatment can help them just to stay at a relatively safe weight and, you know, that they're getting the right nutrition in their diet, that's all that really, as far as I understand, all that really matters. And obviously, you know, closely monitoring the situation in case they fall back into that. Um, But, yeah, I think it's just a case of it being them being in a safe place health-wise and also, you know, psychosocially that they can function with friends and colleagues or family. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I just wanted to clarify because I think initially I was like, well, you know, surely you should be supporting someone to kind of fully recover from the eating disorder. But I think the the way that you've described it there kind of it is those sort of sensory characteristics and things like that, which, it, you know, obviously can occur without autism, um, mm. but just kind of sound more like a sort of neurodiversity, that sort of thing, which with that, you're never trying to, you know, make someone recover from that. It's just exactly. helping them to support and to be able to manage the day to day life with those with those symptoms. So I guess that makes sense from that perspective, actually. Initially, I was like, well, well that sounds a bit, you know, yeah, it sounds, yeah, sounds <laughs> yeah. But I think, yeah, it's just a case of in terms of recovery, you want them to recover from these horrible consequences. Yeah. So you don't want them to be at too low a weight. You don't want them to experience um, any kind of negative impact on their nutritional health. You want to restore that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the likelihood is that they will probably always have a different relationship or a different uh, differences in the way that they eat or differences with food. Um, but it's just, I suppose, a case of learning techniques that help them, as we said earlier, you know, um, exposure therapy, for example, so that they um, can eat some chips with their friends in a restaurant. They don't need to go there and be struggling to choose between five things on the menu. Mm-hmm. But if they go somewhere that where they know they can eat chips and they like them, that's good enough um Mm. and therefore it's not having an impact on the way that they live their life so I think yeah like the consequences are important to um Mm -hmm. treat fully uh but the actual sort of underlying issue there possibly in in maybe the majority of cases won't always go away completely Mm, yeah and I just want to finish by asking you because I'm aware that we've said that there needs to be more training for GPs and things which I completely agree with but I don't want to put people off going to their GP to get support um so if somebody is struggling or is worried about somebody struggling with ARFID what would be your advice for them the next steps I think exactly you know as you just said it's probably your GP or if your child's quite young your health visitor um if their child's in school school nurses so these these common sort of um, healthcare practitioners who you would go to for any kind of issue um, and uh, you know as I 
it's a really important point that we don't want to put people going off to the going to their GPs and um, because I should probably point out that we also spoke to parents who had really good experiences with GPs mm-hmm. um you know and were refer- referred straight on and and as I said earlier it's not always the case that GPs don't understand or have a lack of awareness sometimes it's just a case that they they can't do anything unfortunately which is a real shame um but yeah I think going to the GP and, and essentially going there with the knowledge that it could be offered is really important because quite a common thing that came up was that parents just they were they were at a complete loss as to what to do and you know they'd never heard of Arfid um and by some sort of stroke of luck they stumbled across this term um so if you go to a GP and you say I think it could be this and they tick this box and they tick Mm -hmm. this box and they tick this box even if your GP hasn't yet engaged with um some kind of education around that it may be that they're then able to help you out i think also there's some self-referrals that you can do online um and you know i don't know for sure um but i think some of the parents did self-refer so so there are sort of avenues to getting help but i think a gp is a nice safe bet to go to to ask that first question um, and particularly if 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 it's a child or a young person or even if it's it's for yourself um, if these health consequences, if you're having these health consequences, that's something that's serious enough, something that needs to be taken seriously anyway, whether it's offered or not. So, um, yeah, presenting to healthcare services is important. Yeah, absolutely. And I really like that idea of sort of, you know, if it's something that you're concerned about, take reasons why you're concerned about it because you know if you've got that factual information there it's going to be difficult for your GP to say no that's a load of rubbish Um, and that might help them to kind of you know diagnose it better Um, Mm, so mm. thank you so much Laura it's been so lovely to have you back on um, and talk about ARFID again Um, where can people go to find out more and keep in touch with your research? Um, I think just on the UCL website, I've got a Twitter page as well, though I'm not particularly active on it. Um, but I'm open to any emails if people have, you know, questions or want to read my papers or anything. Um, yeah, just the sort of general platforms, really. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. And best of luck at your conference. Um, I hope it all goes well. (laughs) Thanks so much. (laughs) It's a pleasure. Thanks, Anna. If you enjoyed listening today, you won't want to miss next week's episode, so be sure to subscribe. Eating disorders are crippling illnesses, but with the right support, they can be recovered from. We really hope you enjoyed this episode, but if you require more support right now, please look into charities such as First Steps and Beat for support or talk to someone you trust.